0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
1: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
3: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. How free are you these days? Well, I'm teaching, doing a lot of events to support my book, so I'd say I'm not that free.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, definitely busy. We're all busy at this time of year, particularly in the academic world, but I'm talking more in like a metaphorical sense. There's been a lot of talk about the importance of freedom in America these days. Think about the Freedom Caucus, or Ron DeSantis has called Florida Freedom's Vanguard, and Trump recently claimed he wanted to construct freedom cities on federal land. That kind of freedom. Oh, I see. You
3: mean the Orwellian kind of freedom, where being free means you are free to ignore the rights and happiness of other people. Uh, So if you're talking about that kind of freedom, I guess I'd say I've been experiencing a lot of that kind of freedom, mostly directed against curtailing the rights and happiness of people I care about, including immigrants, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, and many other marginalized populations.
1: Fair enough. I think, in fact, people in this country have very different definitions of what it means to be free. And so we're going to examine those definitions today with the poet and memoirist Tracy K. Smith, Tracy K. Smith is a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, memoirist, editor, translator, and opera librettist. She served as the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States from 2017 to 2019, during which time she spearheaded American Conversations, celebrating poems in rural communities with the Library of Congress, launched the American public media podcast, The Slowdown, and edited the anthology American Journal, 50 Poems for Our Time. She is a professor of English and of African and American Studies at Harvard University, and she's here to talk to us about freedom and her new book, To Free the Captives. Welcome back, Tracy.
3: Thank you. It's great to see you both. We're thrilled to have you with us. Um, in the second essay of this collection, you write, quote, My error, I now see, had been believing that I was free, that freedom had long ago been won for me. For in reality, I am not free, but rather freed a guest in the places, we might just as easily call them institutions, where freedom is professed. So for you, what is that distinction between free and freed, and what role does that play in your thinking throughout the book?
2: Mm -hmm. It's a subtle distinction um, and largely invisible, as I understand it. But I think we are actually obedient to it in many ways. As I see it, um, the American imagination has been configured in such a way that some of us are considered to be, and to always have been free. And I believe those are people who appear to descend from histories of power ownership Um, in this country. That means um, enslavement, forced, you know, the forced migration of others, um, other such deliberate acts um, of, or pacts as I like to think of them. And The people in this category enjoy a freedom that goes largely uncontested, whereas the others of us um, appear to descend from histories of um, being acted upon by the free, you know, through enslavement, through, um, you know, the consequences of colonialism. And for us, I believe there is a lower ceiling um, and a nearer border um, that governs what we can reasonably ask for or expect or critique in this country. And most of the time, I think we move along without a lot of reminders of this, but they're present. And uh, for me, they became perceptible during the year uh, 2020 when so many of us were thinking about justice and thinking about how the institutions, including the nation that we belong to, might choose to change in order to offer more to more people.
1: At the top of the show, Sugi and I were talking about the concept of freedom as espoused by people like the members of the Freedom Caucus or Ron DeSantis and former President Trump. In that same essay, you have a definition of freedom that, to me, fits more with their idea of freedom. Um, you describe that freedom as, quote, a willful act, a pact with erasure and forgetting. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think it comes back to this notion, um, this fabrication of, of what the free Um, descend from and are entitled to. Um, You know, the myth in this country is that it's an innate status that certain people arrived here with freedom and continue to operate um, under the presumption of it when in reality, we know there's always been conquest. There's always been um, violent territorial injustice that has facilitated um, dominion of some over others. And um, sometimes I feel like the way that the word freedom is sometimes used in our country, um, that it operates as uh, a shield for all of the deliberate machinations that actually disenfranchise others um, and maybe allow a kind of conscience absolving um, belief that what is being done is um, not out of the ordinary. That um, the reason some people don't have um, access to, you know, guaranteed polling um, situations or the reason some people feel themselves to be um, left out of um, decision making in this country isn't because there's injustice, but rather they're just not entitled to as much freedom as others. Um, They don't know what to do with it. It will be squandered. It will be wasted. Um, And maybe this is a conversation that is operating at a more audible decibel level right now. um, But I don't think it's ever gone silent.
1: I feel like that connection with erasure reminded me of the reactions that those groups had to projects like the 1619 Mm -hmm. Project, right, to teaching history and being honest about the history of enslavement in the United States. And what they're saying is we don't we want the freedom to not have to know about that. We want the freedom to continue to erase that. Is that sort of what's part of that definition as well? Absolutely.
2: Um, The full history reveals that, you know, this is something that was warred over and stolen. Um, And how can you act in good faith? How can you demand what you believe is coming to you if this is the backstory that's, you know, kind of shadowing your your position here? Um, And so history is a real threat to the mythology of, of freedom in this country history is always a threat to mythology which as I see it is something that rescues people and um, decisions from the reality of um, of the, the choices that set them into into play or the the forms of violence that enabled them
3: so, I think there's maybe, I mean, there's so many American institutions that have deployed the concept of freedom in one way or the other, but maybe no American institution more associated with that term than the American military. And you talk a lot about your family's connections to the military, which we're going to get to. But I want to talk first about why that connection between freedom and the military exists. Is it legitimate? I mean, yes, you know, our military has fought against fascist dictators like Hitler and Mussolini. And and in that sense, prevented this country and from being governed by them. But today I frequently hear people talk about the military as preserving our freedom. And I wonder what that means. I mean, did Operation Iraqi Freedom preserve anyone's freedom? It doesn't seem that way to me.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that um, all of the different narratives that we claim make it possible for all of these different functions to um, operate, simultaneously and what i mean is um you know i imagine i have ancestors who fought in the civil war um so enslaved blacks who honestly and legitimately believed and trusted that what they were fighting for was freedom from enslavement and a full um full allotment of humanity in the eyes of this nation um and in their experience those would have been not the abstractions that we experience them as now but like utterly concrete facts of ex, of daily existence um, I write a little bit about my grandfather and great uncle who I know fought in World War one um, and uncles and my father who were also enlisted later um, in later conflicts and I think that oftentimes for um, black, soldiers and maybe, you know, soldiers in minoritized communities, um, what is being fought for is the right to those very same things, to participate and be seen as a full citizen of this country. And I know that for my father and his brothers enlisting in the military also seem to offer an on-ramp into middle-class life or something close to it. And so those are freedoms from certain of the circumstances, for example, Jim Crow segregation that they would have um, been born into. Um, I know that participation in the service didn't actually yield all of those fruits for everyone, but I think the um, motivation was that the government, would operate in good faith and we in good faith could participate in this project of citizenship. Um, But as we've been saying, there's nothing that's um, clean. (laughs) There's no history that isn't marred by um, the leveraging of power over others. Um, I think it's really interesting. The military quietly reinforces so many of the social hierarchies um, that we live with in this country. Um, maybe just first and foremost, a deference to power and um, a belief that authority is something that we can trust in many cases. Um, but it also invites people who are oftentimes among the most vulnerable in this nation to become complicit in certain of these other choices that you're talking about, um, conflicts over resources, conflicts that are going to create devastation in, in other um, other states, other nations. And so it's just, it's a complicated (laughs) set of choices. Um, And I'm not sure that everybody is thinking through them all um, or has the belief that they can afford to think through them all um, in choosing the version of freedom that might feel most at hand. And I'm sure that's not an accident. I'm sure that having um, citizens from different sectors invested in these conflicts um, some of the, the motivations for which are, are kept quiet. <laughs> um, I'm sure that reinforces, I don't know, forms of trust and authority that, um, that
1: serve the few rather than the many. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So I have written in the past about um, black soldiers serving in World War II, and I've, and a lot of people have written about that, you know, And there's because, of course, they came back with this horrible irony of returning to Jim Crow. Um, but you write uh, in, in that first essay about black soldiers, including your grandfather who fought in World War I, which is not something I've read a lot about. I wondered if you could talk about your research for that and your grandfather's experience in the war and, 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 and the experience of these other soldiers, and then maybe read to us a little bit from the essay.
2: Sure, um, I didn't have a lot of the documents from my grandfather's experience that I wanted, that I wished for. I had I was able to locate, you know, um, en- enlistment records and get a sense of where he sailed off to um, to serve. An old portrait of him, probably around the time that he enlisted, um, or perhaps from his time in uh, France surfaced. That was just such a gift of a miracle. But in order to get a sense of what his experience might have been like, I had to kind of look into archives of other people's experience. And um, one place that was really useful was the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture, which um, many people, many private citizens, descendants of of World War I veterans have offered up their um, fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers archives to what I think of as like the wider history. And so one thing that I learned is that very few black uh, soldiers were in combat units. Um, And the reason for that was not an accident. It had to do with, on the one hand, fear of giving Black men weapons. On the other hand, the prevailing stereotypes that would cast Blacks as, you know, shiftless, as lazy, as cowardly, as untrustworthy. And so most, though not all, Black soldiers ended up in labor units, service units, which is where my grandfather was. for There's, once, that's you know,
1: a case where uh, prejudice is working in your favor because being a combat unit in World War I was not yeah. a good thing to be in.
2: Yeah, I mean, although they also testify about having fought another war within the war. Yeah, for was sure. Which the one no against, um, you know, white compatriots who were just not ready to accept um, their presence in the same, you know, the same army Um, And so there's this sense of conflict in war, conflict upon returning home. Some soldiers, you know, were brutally beaten, lynched, attacked, challenged for coming home and seeking to wear the uniform of a hero um, back in the U.S. But I was really interested to learn about um, the 369th uh, Combat Unit, otherwise known as the Harlem Hellfighters. Um, They were a combat unit and they served... With utter heroism, and um, were awarded the um, the uh, French Victory Medal, and various nations had versions of the Victory Medal. The U.S. had one as well. Um, they were awarded these French medals because their um, their unit was actually placed under French um, command command because racism within the U.S. was just making it too difficult for them to effectively. Um, operate alongside white soldiers. Um, there's one story of a, of a veteran named uh, Leslie uh, McVeigh, who, Lawrence Leslie McVeigh, Sr., who um, fought in the war, survived one of the, you know, most intense battles um, between the French and German army and returned to life in New York, you know, with this hero's medal and this record of heroic service. Um and quickly, like other veterans, found himself filtered back into the racial hierarchies in this country. Um, I feel like his story is sacred in a way. <laughs> I don't know his family, but they offered it, you know, his archive. Um, but it's painful even to say. he returned to the US. He took a job um, with the Pennsylvania Railroad. Um, and at the end of his life, he was attacked and beaten to death in a New York City park. And um, though, you know, the service and this, this brutalization stand decades apart, I feel like they also remind us of a lot of terms of belonging and vulnerability, perhaps, um, that, that Black people in this country live with um i believe that it reminds us that in the american imagination not all are entitled to freedom from um um i feel like his death reminds us that in this country some are expected to have to fight for safety to have to fight for a stronghold in um in you know our cities and our in our culture um, I think in many ways, what became clear to me in my own vocabulary is that we are all always fighting a war quietly in this country that has to do with who is entitled to freedom and who, from whom it must be defended, whose, you know, lack of freedom is something that can be ignored or rather even just trusted, um, that things as a sign that things are, are operating as perhaps, Many
1: believe they should. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here and we'll be right back.
2: So can you read that section? Okay, so I'll read from this passage that um, is thinking about World War I and, and black veterans experience. A commonly cited motivating factor leading black men to enlist in World War I is hope. They are hopeful that in helping to defend democracy in Europe, they might prove their, our loyalty to this nation. They pray their service might vanquish the ugly contradiction of racism and second-class citizenship at home in this bastion of freedom and democracy. According to U.S. Department of Defense archives, the majority of Black infantrymen are conscripted to labor and engineering corps. They clear roads, raise forests, raise bridges. Some, like the all-Black 369th Infantry, also known as the Harlem Hellfighters, enter into combat with consummate heroism, pushing back enemy lines to such an extent that they are celebrated as seminal to the success of Allied forces. Someone has written hero in the upper right corner of Corporal Lawrence Leslie McVeigh Senior's portrait. He wears the same wool tunic collar coat as my grandfather and Corporal Splone, but around his waist is a canvas cartridge belt from which hangs a short sword in its scabbard. McVeigh's right hand is flat as if at attention. The first and second fingers on his left hand straddle the scabbard, a habit from long acquaintance. His hat is set at a young man's tilt, and he is, to my eyes, very young. McVeigh was a member of the 369th Infantry. According to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, which holds McVeigh's photos and wartime effects, the 369th was assigned to France's oversight, owing to racial tensions within the U.S. military. McVeigh was seriously wounded in the final weeks of the war while leading his squad in an attack against German machine gunners in Seychaut, France. For his heroism, he was awarded the Purple Heart, the French Croix de Guerre, the Legion of Honor, and inter-allied victory medals from both France and the United States. France's victory medal, which hangs from a rainbow-striped ribbon, is, to my eyes, the most pleasing. Winged victory is depicted on the obverse, arms outstretched, sword at her side. On the back is the phrase, la grande guerre pour la civilisation. I can almost feel the object's heft in my palm, can almost allow myself to claim a portion of the pride it must have conferred. I imagine these black soldiers receiving theirs and for a time feeling nearly repaid for something. The great war for civilization. How long would it have lasted, the feeling of being deemed a hero, indispensable to the fate of his nation? How soon upon returning home would McVeigh and black veterans like him have been reminded that there is always a war brewing in America? a war fought in train cars and restaurants, in classrooms and theaters, under the breath, under the collar. In the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, not everywhere, but anywhere. If I wish to lay claim to a portion of these men's pride, what vigilance and what grief must I also accept as mine? In a photo from soon after the close of the war, McVeigh is back home in New York. He sits cross-legged on a beach in a striped bathing costume. He smiles broadly, holding both arms outstretched toward the camera so that his hands in the foreground bid us toward him. In the photo's bottom margin in blue ink, someone has written, Daddy, I want to honor this young man, courageous on the front lines of France, the returning veteran whose celebrated heroism inevitably receded against the demands of day-to-day necessity. He assented to the duty and the dignity of providing for a family. He found work with the Pennsylvania Railroad, likely given hiring trends at the time as a station porter or in a railway dining car. He raised a family whose love for him and whose hope for this country led them to offer up his story to the larger body of American history. On September 30th, 1968, at age 71, Corporal Lawrence Leslie McVeigh Sr. was attacked and beaten to death in a New York City park. History is here beside us when we consider such a fact. History arriving to tell us this one thing more about the centuries-long war in which countless have fallen, are falling still. History, imploring us to confront what has been hammered into us about which lives matter, about what it is that some are entitled to and others are expected to fight or even die for. History arrives to remind us where and by whom our better efforts are sorely required.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I, I just wanted to... Well, sorry. T- no, go ahead. What were you gonna say?
2: I was just gonna say, you know, thinking about the this other ulterior feeling, use of, of freedom, thinking about it against that passage, I really do imagine it's being wielded as one of these tools of, of this other quiet war. Um, that reminds us of which which place we we must be kept to um, and which place others might begin to mark out more actively for themselves and it's interesting that 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 word has been weaponized in so many so many contexts and at so many different points in our in our history
1: well that medal that he receives when i was thinking about for being for civilization i mean one of the things that i was trying to say earlier and by the way not wanting to diminish the experiences of black soldiers who were in engineering crews or anything like that but the first world war was so deeply insane and it was deeply insane on the germans part and on the in british part and when you're talking about colonial powers that's them and they created this war and they're the arrogance of the war is un, just absolutely unparalleled in human history and these are the people who are doing it and who were not called to account and who did erase all the incredibly stupid decisions they made to create the war and kill so many people, you know. And for me, that is connected to the the freedom to do that is connected to the kind of freedom that you're trying to talk about here, I think, as well. I mean, you know, the racism of the United States is equally disdained, is equally terrible and, and also insane. Right. And, and the freedom to act that way and not be called to account is kind of what I feel like we're talking about. Or that's what. It connects to the war in that way for me.
2: Yeah. Sometimes I think that um, for whatever reason, the word liberty feels useful in sort of delineating those different um, shades of of what freedom allows for permission for. Um, And it feels like, you know, it's a word, freedom, that masquerades as many things. And liberty feels like um, a version of it that says, go do what you must, take what you will, um, that's part of your birth right? And I, in some ways, I feel like this is the the connotation uh, of the word that is rising again to the surface of our of our conversations in this country.
3: As we're having this conversation about the military, I can't help but remember that when Scotus overturned affirmative action, they exempted military academies
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And Justice, you know, Brown-Jackson had the beautiful reading of that, which is to say they're, you know, they're absolutely worthy to step into um, combat and into peril, but not into opportunity.
3: Yeah, when that just feels like, yeah, the continuing, the continuing arc of this, um, of the way that black soldiers, black and brown people who are, of course, disproportionately um, in the military are... Accorded a certain kind of rhetoric without the full the full bodied um, notion of freedom that it's kind of that I'm, we're dreaming of that's behind this yeah. this other false version
2: and it in the like collection. An, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it. It feels like an algorithm. Um, if the conversation is happening with a certain population, someone who operates at a certain rung in our hierarchy. Then a certain certain connotations come into play, and they're the ones that um, might point toward social ascent in some way, but actually lead toward a certain kind of risk and a, a, a lower ceiling of opportunity in the large scale. And if these words are operating um, in the context of somebody that you know, maybe our nation sees as free, then this other this other set of permissions come into play. And it's really interesting to, to see how deftly our nation or certain of our leaders have managed to move from one algorithmic uh, vocabulary to another uh, almost uh, shamelessly, or perhaps not almost, but um, with, with a defiant shamelessness. Um, and we've been trained for so long to trust so many of these narratives that it's very hard to um, even want to call them out, I think.
1: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So
3: in the collection, you set up a countervailing principle to this false notion of freedom and that is, you, you offer us the concept of soul to consider as an alternative. And I'm curious about how you arrived at that particular phrase and concept, if it was during the course of working on these essays, or was it there from the beginning? And can you just talk a little bit about that and, and define what it means for you?
2: Yeah, I think I'll start by saying that this emerged as a bedrock for me, as somebody who descends from Black Southerners, somebody for whom the soul has been many things, but mostly a sense of um, anchoring and support um, in the absence of a kind of institutional investment that black people you know in this country could um, hope for. And so I think about, you know how um, there are so many improvised institutions that black people, throughout history have formed in order to sustain themselves families and communities. Um, even the kinds of extended families, what I think of as like a patchwork of kin and, um, and people claimed as kin that drew, um, support for one another that, that, um, created a sense of, of anchoring and reinforcing, um, in, you know, the depression or in, in times where, um, The only way to keep going was to to make do. Um, That feels to me like a kind of um, soul work, in a way. Um, I also, in thinking through the archive, realized that so much of what's missing is the vocabulary of that soul work, which is love, which is trust, which is um, faith. You know that that we are not here for. for no reason and that we are absolutely in the right. Um, religion historically in black life has been, I believe, a way of um, affirming a kind of social or moral correctness that other institutions you know, ignore. And so for me, it's not associated with some of the guilt or anxiety that it might hold in a wider, perhaps not accidentally in this country, whiter or um, more um, socially elite um, connotations. And one of the reasons that I hold that or have arrived at that sense is there's not the guilt that comes from the reminder that religion has been one of the strongest or most powerful tools Wielded in order to claim, and protect this thing called freedom, um, by the powerful against the 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 weakest in our country, um, and so the soul becomes uh, almost a defiant capacity. The soul becomes um, a, a means of of protest. A soul becomes a way of saying together we can make something that's not only capable of sustaining one another but over time perhaps changing the larger national understanding of what a nation is and, and who belongs and who should benefit from, from that belonging. So I become really excited about this soul. I um, I start to think that the power struggles and the machinations of dominance that have maintained, you know, authority of the few over the many, um, they're tired, they're, they're wobbling, they're not even fully um, yielding, you know, what, what in the past they might have been able to, to yield with, with very little resistance. And so I'm thinking, what what, might help. Not just those of us who feel that freedom is something that has been withheld from us in its fullest sense, but those who also don't agree with this um, hierarchy that that we have been sorted into. Those who realize that notions that some are worthy of greater permission and freedom than others is wrong. Um, Those who are tired of even the unconscious exhaustion of defending something that they know might maybe isn't correct. Um, And I think about what the soul of a people has been capable of doing in in African-American histories and with what it's been capable of withstanding and how it's the voice, the vision and the faith, of something like a black soul that has also been able to make some of the most powerful changes in the American um, adherence to its values of democracy or its professed values. And so I want want to urge an investment in this as a counter logic or as um, an alternative to the logic of power. If that, if that might be something that Americans who are tired of this other sense of constant labor um, might, might become receptive to.
1: It works for me because I mean, also the word soul comes out of the American vernacular. I mean, that is a speech that we're used to and that have, we have associations with that are very powerful. And in the essay, in the collection, um, the person most associated with soul is your, is your father. you've written about elsewhere but he uh was in the air force became a master sergeant i mentioned that because my neighbor terry Hemmett, became a master sergeant recently and i got to go to his on zoom go to his uh attend his ceremony when he got you know his jacket and all that stuff and it was really cool so it's a big deal to be a master sergeant um but for listeners who and you've written about your father also as i just said but for listeners may not know about him or know him could you talk about him and why he was a soulful person in your estimation?
2: Of course, yeah. Um, both my parents grew up in Alabama in the 30s, 40s, um, early 50s. Um, my dad grew up in a really small town called Sunflower. Um, and after high school, ended up joining the military after you know, a couple of failed attempts to launch in, in other places. Um, And became a father eventually of five, working uh, this, you know, in service to the government and also in service to a really large family. And what I learned about my dad um, after his death was that this person who, you know, was capable in my imagination of everything, you know, somebody who loved books, somebody who loved making things, somebody whose training was as an engineer and somebody who took great joy in, you know, making these beautiful artful, like creations um, in woodworking or, um, you know, electrical engineering, even on the home front. This, this hero was somebody who also kind of, in some ways, worked really quietly against these, these hierarchies that we've been talking about. Um, One document or set of documents that I found in his, you know, among his personal papers, when, Um, we sold the house that my siblings and I grew up in was a letter that he received from the government in 1977, telling him that he owed the military a debt of $1,030 for what was described as overshipment of household goods, which meant that for somebody at his rank that he was at that time, he had shipped too many belongings. And so a red flag was raised was this an you know instance of fraud? Was this you know an act of intentional dishonesty? In any event, he was you know going to have to pay back this money, that other papers in that file revealed to me was going to be impossible given the size of our family and the size of his income and um, the various you know just monthly expenses. And so I witnessed my dad writing this letter draft by draft, making a case to the government. Um, Saying I served in Southeast Asia in you know during the Vietnam War. I returned to um, Virginia. Um, I had to buy a house on the open market because military housing was not available. I was transferred to California. The same thing happened. I have two children in college. I have five kids total. Um, To repay this debt is a burden that I would not be able to um, withstand. And I can feel, having received, you know, tax bills from the government that surprised and startled me, I can feel the the fear. I can feel the sort of spike of adrenaline in, in my father's voice. And I also can recognize the need for decorum and restraint in his approach to solving this problem. And ultimately what solves it is a letter from his commanding officer who says um, he's got a big family and um, this debt should be um, erased. And um, I realized there must have been countless challenges that my parents faced, dealt quietly with um, in such a way that I could have grown up believing that I was no different from the people I now understand were free, um, though my family and I were merely freed. And um, I guess it tells me a, another version of the, you know, the American story, which is that um, there's such grace and there's such dignity uh, in communities where there's also a greater form of scrutiny that people for um, some of the reasons we've been talking about might find themselves subject to. Um, and I would never have imagined that that was uh, an element of the description of my father even just a few years ago. Um, but now I understand that um, it's probably one of the first things that, that um, defined him for himself in certain spaces.
3: So Tracy, late in the book, you write, freedom isn't a thing to be held or hoarded. Its purpose is to be passed forward, given away. Freedom is an impossibility in places where the most one is encouraged to seek and guard jealously is power, permission, authority. Freedom is held captive in places like these. And that last line brings me back to the title of the book. Am I right to think that the first line suggests an idea of freedom that would be in keeping with, rather than in opposition to your idea
2: of soul. Absolutely, I I think that um, the tensions around these notions of freedom and um, and you know liberty um, as tools of power um, is evidence that what's actually operating more and more boldly vigorously unapologetically in america at this time is something that that has to do with hoarding shoring up and wielding power Um, and it's defending itself against this more earnest um, sense of the word which is something that could be spread and shared and given away you know like tony morrison says the purpose of freedom is to be given away given to others um, And so I, I would like to imagine that there are more of us who would like to depart from this feeling of being held captive to a set of terms and priorities that serve very few people. And even those um, are served in such a way that they must constantly imagine themselves to be under attack by people who have less freedom and, and want it um, and the wish or the plea that this book is seeking to make is, um, let's think about vocabularies of sharing, corroborating, and proliferating um, the freedom that, that those of us have, limited though it may be. Um, it might be, um, it might be put to you to work making something that would free all of us from the cap- captivity. To these really small um, quarters of the American imagination, you know, we can we can do much better. I think if we if we choose to exit that system and work toward constructing something that um, that operates in earnest as a as a means of of liberation for all.
1: Tracy, thanks so much for joining us again, listeners. We encourage you to check out "To Free the Captives" and the rest of Tracy's amazing work.
2: Thanks so much. It's great to talk with both of you again.
1: That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Kniggendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. For the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Up Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!